So I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 7 this morning, verses 1 and 2. And, and Paul begins here talking about weddings and funerals, or funerals and weddings in, in that order, which are, are, are two events that pastors spend a lot of time participating in in, in, their, in their ministries, and rightfully so. Both are significant events in people's lives, and there are moments when you, you get to apply pastoral care and um, you get to participate in, in these, these times of, of joy and in times of, of sorrow with, with other people. There are also unprecedented, occasion, unprecedented occasions to, uh, to, to present the gospel. I mean, there, there's no clearer moment than a funeral to herald the hope of the gospel, which is a believer's resurrection. I mean, the Bible says Christians sorrow at, at that moment, but we do so with hope. And that hope is the the promise that those who are in Christ will, will rise again. I mean, a religion that carries you up to the grave but not beyond it is a worthless one and, and not worth following, quite frankly. I mean, I've stood over many caskets of followers of Christ and then beside an, an, an open grave and you have the, that earthly tabernacle, that, that tent, that, that shell that's, that, that's there. And even in the midst of that, the evidence of the curse right there, the evidence that sin has overtaken and, and the fall is, is real, and this is part of the consequence, standing there over the open grave, I, I, I'm able to declare with absolute confidence that this ruined body that goes in the ground will be raised as eternal tissue one day at the call of Christ, changed. It's a perfect opportunity to speak about the hope of the, uh, of the gospel. But a wedding couldn't be clear either, but, but it's from a different angle. I'm often asked by Christian couples uh, uh, to share the gospel during, you know, during the wedding. Uh, unsaved Uncle Joe's going to be there or whoever it, whoever it might be. And my answer is always the same. That's easy because your entire ceremony is a picture of the of the gospel. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that human marriage is an imperfect reflection of the, the, the love that Jesus has for his church. And the Bible describes the church as a bride who's Christ and has been promised to Christ. With his first advent, the first coming of, of Jesus, he came for his bride and he shed his own blood for her as a payment for her. And then after securing her for all eternity, he went away to prepare a place for her, which, which means to complete the preparations for the marriage celebration. That's, that's the, what the passage, the very familiar passage that you probably know in John 14 is, is talking about. John 14, 2-3, as I memorized it or remember it, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. Jesus has paid for his bride, and now he's returned to the Father to make preparations, to return again and receive her and bring her into his home. And the bride, which is the church, is making herself ready for that day. And so when Jesus Christ comes again, the Bible says that he'll come dressed in the splendor of a bridegroom to receive his church. And he'll take her to his father's house for the great wedding celebration, which is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And from that point, Christ and his church will be together forever in, in undiminished joy. And the fruit of that union, the fruit of that marriage, is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in, in Romans 7. But Paul says before there's this wedding that takes place, there also must be a funeral where we need to die to the law so that we can be united with Christ. And the last time we started looking at how Paul unfolds his argument here by, by describing how a believer has a new relationship to the law. There's a relationship to the law prior to Christ, and there's a relationship to the law now that you're in Christ, in union with Him. And there's a purpose for this, this change, this, this break. And, and Paul, the master apologist, makes this compelling argument here in Romans 7, which sets up the chapter that we're all waiting for in in Romans 8, about this new life in the Spirit and, and how it's impossible to be separated from the, 
from, from the love of Christ. And, and chapter 7 kind of sits in the valley here with, with, with chapter 6 between these two, these two mountain peaks of, of assurance, chapter 5 and, and chapter 8. Chapter 5 declares uh, uh, in justification our peace with God. We, we have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. And then chapter 8 declares this provision of the, of the Spirit that, that's been provided also. Right here in the valley, you have chapter 6 and 7, which, which is part of this bigger argument of assurance that, that Paul's been, been, been making. And in chapter 6 and 7, Paul addresses some misunderstandings about, about the gospel. And you, we said you can even read Romans uh, chapter 5 and then pick up again in chapter 8 without chapter 6 and 7, and it would make perfect sense. We would never do that, but if you did do that, it would leave you with some of the same questions that, that were rattling around in, in people's minds whenever they heard Paul preach about the reach and the reign of grace and the setting aside of the law and and they would have these questions. Those were the two questions that they had. I mean, Paul's preached this gospel before, and he's received, he's received uh, questions before, sometimes even more than questions. And those two questions had to do with the extent of grace and the application of the law. Now, it's the same questions that you have. I mean, if grace is so full and free and so sovereign and so all of these things, then, then, then doesn't that mean that I'll just continue in sin? I mean, how do I deal with sin now that I'm under grace? And and hey, I got a, a lot of Old Testament here to deal with. I mean, the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses and the Law written on my heart. I mean, how, what what is what place does the law play now that the gospel has come? And in Christ, what's the application of the law? And that's exactly what he covers in Romans six and Romans seven. Romans six is all about grace and its overpowering of sin, and Romans seven is about how grace triumphs in place of the law. It doesn't do away with the law in the sense of that is still there, and we still, re- we still relate to it in certain ways, which we'll learn about, but it triumphs over it. Grace does what the law could never do, as you'll see today. It calls you to bear fruit to God. And Paul's already shown us that the law doesn't save you in chapter 2 as he's building his whole argument. But chapter 7 comes along and explains why the law can't do that, why the law can't save, why Christ had to come. And why the law doesn't provide the answer to sin, even as a Christian now, as you battle with the, with the law, which Paul will end this familiar chapter with the things that I want to do, I don't do. And he'll describe that, that battle. God's law has always been for sanctifying purposes, but never for a saving one. And apart from the empowerment of the Spirit, the, the law is a dead written code, a good code that reveals God to us, but it has no power. And to make this plain, Paul presents a, a necessary funeral before he describes this glorious wedding. And Paul says, with the coming of Christ, there has been a significant change for a believer related to the law of God. There's been a death to it. And that change brought about a new union, which is our joining to Jesus Christ. I mean, this entire chapter, there's, there are three, three divisions. The section we're in defines our new relationship to the law by using this analogy of a, of a funeral and a, and a subsequent wedding. And, and then in verses 7 through 12, Paul defends the law. The law's good. We're bad. And then he describes an illustration of, of, of this worked out in, in real life in verses 13 through, through 25. I mean, Paul begins here, though, with a very practical illustration that everyone can understand about, about marriage. I mean, he states a common principle about the law's jurisdiction in verse 1. It, it only extends up to death. And then he illustrates it with an analogy of marriage, the binding nature of it in verses 2 and 3. And finally, he applies that to our union with Christ, and he draws a conclusion in verses 4 through 6. He, he says, we died to the law so that we might belong to another. We belong to another in order that we might bear fruit to God And we bear fruit now because we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. There's a change with the old so that we can bear fruit in the new. And that comes through the fullness of the Spirit, which he'll teach us all about in Romans chapter 8. But he first has to deal with the law. What about the law? Is the law set aside? How does our relationship change to this law that rules over us? 
we're calling this this section three descriptions of a believer's new relationship to to the law. There's the ruling principle of law in verse 1. There's a required death seen in this supporting illustration. And then there's this new representative marriage that he describes in his, in his conclusion. Ruling principle, a required death, and a representative marriage. We covered verses 1 through 3 last time and we'll, we'll almost finish the rest of it today. Let's look at this first, just way of reminder, this ruling principle of the law. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of Romans 7. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? I mean, Paul begins here with a general principle that everyone would agree with. The law has limits to its jurisdiction. It doesn't go beyond the grave. That's basically what he's saying. He starts here like he does in chapter 6, where he starts with with slavery. He says, do you not know? Meaning, of course you know what what I'm saying. It's like saying, this is common sense. And we also saw that Paul wasn't just talking to Jews. It wasn't just the Jewish people, Jewish believers that, 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 that understood this principle. He addresses it to all of us because he says, brethren, or do you not know brethren? Indicating that he's talking to the whole church here which are both Jewish and Gentile believers. In fact, the majority of the church of Rome was Gentile. So he's not directing this chapter to Hebrews only. There's some specific application to Jewish believers, but it's to all of us. I mean, when Paul actually wants to make clear that he's talking only to to the Jewish people, he, he, he does that, like he does in Romans 9, the same letter. He says, for I wish that that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. There's the word, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. I mean, when, when Paul wants to differentiate from Christian brethren, which could be Jew or Gentile, he does so. He'll say something like according to, to the flesh. And while all of that, that's true, he's clearly talking about the end of the law of Moses here, which has general application to all people. I mean, the law of Moses contains the law of God in in general, which applies to to all of us. I mean, we know it's the law of Moses because in verse 7, Paul quotes the Ten Commandments. He talks about, I wouldn't have known what coveting was except the law told me, thou shalt not covet. He quotes from the law of Moses. And then in verse 23, he talks about the law of God. And that law was at the center of every aspect of of a Jewish believer's life and the Gentiles as well, because that law was written on their hearts. Not not to the level of detail that that you would find in Deuteronomy, but but law in general. And Old Testament believers looked to the Mosaic law, and and that, that law told them what to do. They didn't look to the Mosaic law to save them. They were saved by faith like Abraham was. But now being saved by faith, they looked to the law. Uh, what would please God? What, what's right? What, what's wrong? And it told them what to do down to the most mundane facts of, of life. I mean, these are the things that scoffers still pull out of the Bible today to try to discount the, the Scriptures. They'll say, what do you mean you can't eat lobster or, or, or better, bacon? I am thankful we can eat bacon. What, well, what do you mean you can't wear certain fabrics? I mean, what is this about, you know, days of cleanliness and you touch a dead animal? What, what is all of that about? I mean, and they say, see, the Bible's just, just a bunch of religious nonsense. I mean, that law, Paul says, has now been engulfed by the promise that it pointed to at the coming of Christ. I mean, the coming of the one whose work would remove sin and write it on our hearts. The, 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 the shadow of the, of the Old Testament, the law, has been overtaken by, by the figure that cast it, who is Christ. But while he's talking about the law of Moses here, it was actually a fuller explanation of God's law in general, which, which Paul has already said is, is in everyone. I mean, the law is not just a religious code. It's an expression of God's moral character. I mean, yes, there are aspects of the Mosaic law that were specific to the Jewish people living in the land, living in the midst of, of, of God. But in there is an expression of God's moral character. I mean, the Ten Commandments are pretty, claim, uh, pretty plain, right? God's moral character. And God's law existed prior to Moses. It wasn't that God's law just 
just came about whenever he gave it to Moses. It was already there. In fact, law, the principle of law, was first introduced in the Garden of Eden. Let me try to explain this whole idea of law a little bit more so you don't get confused because sometimes when Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the law of Moses or law in general or law written on the hearts, and then you get the law of Christ. I mean, the law of God in its most general sense is simply an expression of God's holiness, God's God's uniqueness, who He is. The law tells us what's right and, and what's wrong. I mean, and, the, and, and law was given in the Garden of Eden. It was given there in its very basic and foundational form. I mean, think about what's happening in the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve, and He says to them, you can eat from every tree in the garden except this one. I mean, that's law. And that established some universal principles. That, that It established that that God is the lawgiver. He's the creator. You're the creation. I am the one who declares law. I declare what's right and wrong. I draw boundaries. And it also declares that, that when, when you stay within the boundaries of law, there's blessing when you obey Him, and there's consequence, uh, consequences and curse whenever you, you violate the law. I mean, you may eat of any tree, which says, I am good. I provide blessing. Stay within my boundaries. But of this one tree you shall not eat, and if you do, you will, you will die. There are consequences if you go against my law. I am God, the lawgiver. Keep my law and live. Break my law and die. That, that's established before the fall. And from there, God simply reveals more and more. There's a fundamental shift that takes place in Genesis 3 with the fall. Now the law even has to take on a different purpose. It's an add, added purpose. But he adds more in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 through 11. And, and he does the same thing with, with Noah. You have this re, re-gardening scene after the, the ark comes to rest. And God again, then again gives law to Moses. He restates, be fruitful and multiply. But now you can eat animals. Then to Isaac and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But no matter what he adds, it, it never changes or goes against that original principle, this, this original uh, um, intent of the law, that, that God is the lawgiver. He's authority. He gives law, and if you break it, there are consequences. And if not, there, there's blessings. Well, then there's a major revelation of law, isn't there, with the law of Moses? I mean, now it's just blown out in great detail. It's not just all these trees and this, this one tree or, or, or re-gardening scene. And think about what's happening there. I mean, a new day has dawned. I mean, God is fulfilling part of His promise to, to Abraham, and, and He's bringing His people out of bondage, and He's bringing them into the land. He's separating them and bringing them into His chosen land, where once again, now that they're in this land, God is revealing that he's an, he's an authority. He's the authority to his chosen people. Not in the garden, but now in, in the land. And they'll be his people. And he'll be their God in the midst. And some of the part of the Mosaic aspect is now regulating these unholy people in the presence of a holy God before Messiah actually comes and, and can bring that together. And you know all about the sacrifices Hebrews tells us, reminds us, reminds the Jewish people, year after year after year, there is something that still has to come, someone who still has to come. And so he gives law again, then, that will establish the very same principles. But it also reveals God in a, in a fuller way, in a, in a clearer way. But, but again, there in Deuteronomy, if you obey me, there is blessing. If you disobey my authority, there, there is a curse. I mean, law had dominion over them, but it was never intended to say. An obedient Jew believed God, and God credited his faith by, uh, um, uh, under righteousness. And an obedient Jew then, then, then looked to the law to fill that out. And they were sinners, just like you and me, saved the same way, just looking to the cross rather than back. They were saved by faith in God and his promises. And then as an expression of their faith, they obeyed his commands. And so the law was a declaration, even to the Jewish people, that God reigned over them in specific ways. 
And when you disobeyed it, it condemned you. And Paul says that same law, the law that, that was there in general, the law that was fleshed out in all of these specifics in the Mosaic Covenant, that there is a God who is your authority and there's right and wrong, he says is written on every single human heart, Gentile hearts as well. It's not there in, the, in, in the, 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 the detail of Leviticus, but the principle is there. And that law is what condemns us because we don't keep that law, do we? Don't worry about keeping the, the linen code or, 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 the, or the, uh, the, the, the dietary requirements. You don't have to worry about that. You break, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. You break and I break, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see how that's a diversion? The lobster's a diversion from the actual condemnation that's reigning over people's hearts. This is what Romans 2 already told us that we looked at. For Gentiles, when Gentiles who do not have the law, the Mosaic Code, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. It shows the work of the law written on their hearts, the, that there is, there's a God, He's a creator, He is the authority, and there's a right and a wrong. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said the evidence of that law in the heart of every person is indisputable. And he said, you can see that. It comes out even in the way we argue with, with one another. He said, pay attention to how we, we, we argue with each other. We, we say things like, how would you like it if someone did that to you? Or, that's my seat. I was there first. Or, leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Or, give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. I mean, Lewis said expressions like that show that everyone recognizes there's a standard of behavior, a behavior to which others are supposed to measure up to, and that's in their heart. Again, it's not as specific as the Mosaic law. I mean, one jungle tribe can disagree of how many wives you're supposed to have, but they all agree taking one of them is wrong, and they'll even go to war over it. They'll punish someone for doing that. And not only that, people feel guilt whenever they break this internal law, this law of God on their hearts. I mean, Jay and Boyce notes that while we have all broken this, what he calls law of nature, what is even more evident that we have it is that we feel shame for breaking it. I mean, we, we try to cover up our bad behavior, don't we? I mean, our conscience condemns us. We, we know that it's wrong or, or, or even societal norms, what other people think are wrong. We... We don't like to let people know what we do in the dark. We make excuses for it. We blame someone else for it. The devil made me do it. My mother made me do it. Or, or my boss made me do it. Or you made me mad. Or, or whatever it is. And so the problem that Paul is dealing with here in Romans 7 is a universal problem. It's not just a Jewish problem. We're not accountable to the Mosaic law like the Jews were, but we are accountable to God. And so when Paul says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, he is saying that, that all of us have a general awareness of the binding nature of God's law. And everyone knows the principle that, that legal claims are binding upon a person only whenever they are alive. I mean, that's the principle he lays out. Look at verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law? What do we know? that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. I mean, the law only regulates the activities of the living. It doesn't regulate the dead. I mean, you can't regulate a dead man, Jew, Gentile, atheist, or whoever it might be. I mean, the law loses its jurisdiction at death. I mean, that's, that's Paul's point, and he's setting up his argument. He's declaring a fact that everyone would agree with. You can't bring a dead person to trial. And then he, then he illustrates that in a common arena of life, which is also universal. There's the second description. We saw there's a required death demonstrated in this illustration of marriage. Look at verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man... She shall be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, 
though she is joined to another man. I mean, in chapter 6, we, we noted that Paul uses the illustration of slavery, and in chapter 7, he uses the illustration of marriage. And both of them are common. And he says a wife is bound to her husband by the law till death do them part. I mean, Paul's not explaining marriage here, or he's not overruling what what Christ talked about in Matthew 5 or Matthew 19. He's stating what we all know about marriage's binding nature to illustrate what he says about the law. The law is binding, but it's only binding to a certain degree, to a certain point, and that point is death. And when you do that, you don't cover all the caveats, like the exception clauses on divorce. I mean, so what does this illustration show us? Well, that the husband has authority over his wife. Really strong word. She's under the law of her husband. Unless he dies. And if he does die, then she's loosed from that bondage. And everyone understands this, Paul says. In those same weddings that I mentioned earlier, a lot of times Christian or otherwise, we say things like, I, Susie, take you, Bob, to be my wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, and oftentimes it's the latter, in sickness or in health, and you can probably finish it, can't you? Until death do us part. And that's a universal understanding. There's a binding nature of, of marriage. But when death comes, there's an end of that union. And if there's an end, then Paul says there can be a beginning of another. We understand that too. Look, look at the end of verse 2. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. She's released from the law of her husband. And again, we understand this as well. A widow is no longer bound by law to her beloved who's passed away. And then in verse 3, he draws his conclusion. Look at verse 3. So then, here's the conclusion. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. No one would think or should think that Tracy was doing, would be doing anything wrong if I died and she married another believer. After putting up with me for 30 years at our age, she might be crazy to think about doing that, but it wouldn't be unlawful. In fact, Paul even encourages young widows to remarry. 1 Timothy 5.14, Therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for death. Why? Because they're, they're younger. They're, they're, they're still in, in childbearing years. They're, they're, they still have a long runway ahead of them, and, he, and there's a possibility. It's, it's not a requirement, but it's an encouragement because of what could potentially take place, temptations and otherwise. But the opposite is also true. A woman who marries another man while her husband, key word, while her husband is alive is an adulteress by the law. Why? Because she's still bound to that husband. Still a binding nature that's there. The, 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 the dominion has not been removed. And, and the point should be obvious. Law rules over people while they are alive and in a, and in a binding union. But death alters its jurisdiction. Paul says a funeral can lead to a future marriage, which now Paul applies to all of this to us as believers. Here's the third description. It's the representative marriage to, to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. He's drawing his conclusion. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. This, this, this cacophony of, of, of phrases, one dependent upon, upon the other. And, and here is Paul's main point of this, this first section. Verse 1 sets up the principle. Verse 2 or 3 illustrates it, and now he applies it. Here's his main point, and then he will explain what he means further in verses 5 and 6. What he means in verse 4 is further explained in, in verse 5 and, and 6. And you can see that in verse 5. For, while we were in the flesh, verse 6, but now, having been released from the law. So all the details of exactly what he means in verse 4 about bearing fruit will become clearer when we get to verse 4 and, and 5. So, so if you have some questions, they're coming. Let's look at what Paul's point is here. 
He says, you've been freed from your former relationship to the law, just like the woman in the marriage illustration. And that was so, you might be joined to another, and that another is Jesus Christ. Now, let me point out one other thing here so you don't get wrapped up around an axle, which is Paul's subtle shift of the analogy. Did you notice that Paul doesn't use an exact parallel here? Most of you are normal people, and you're not even paying attention to that. You get it. There's a death, and so there's a change. But, but there have been volumes written in commentaries about how Paul must be confused here because he, he changes something. If you're paying attention in verses 2 and 3, in the illustration of marriage, it was the husband who died, which seems to correlate to the law. But here, Paul says, the believer has died. And Paul's not confused. And his point is simply that the former relationship is broken by death. He simply switches the illustration now because the law didn't die. We did. The law still exists and still has a purpose that, that, that we will learn about later. But, but believers were made to die to it in Christ, meaning to its dominion and its condemnation and its impotence. And now we, we have new life and new power by the new covenant, because of the new covenant, by the Spirit. I mean, Paul's point here is that what took place in the gospel, the gospel that he's preaching, is totally legal. And what, is, what has happened is in complete accordance with the law of Moses. I mean, the message that he's preaching doesn't violate the law of Moses in any way. I mean, the law had jurisdiction Upon a person, up till death, illustrated by marriage, but once death happens, it's totally legal for a remarriage to take place or a new marriage to happen. Whatever God's doing in the gospel, Paul says, he's not going to break his own law to do it. I mean, just like the wife to her husband, the law no longer has the same relationship over us to Christ. So Paul can tell a Jew, you do not have to keep the Mosaic covenant any longer because you're now married to another, and that's totally legal. It fulfilled that former covenant, what I'm telling you. I mean, God didn't violate one iota of the law bringing about that change. And Christ didn't do that, which is exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, when Christ was preaching grace and when Christ was preaching justification comes by faith alone, not in the law, he had the exact same questions, the same opposition coming. Who is this rabbi coming along telling us not to pay attention to to the law of Moses? Jesus says, I'm not telling you not to pay attention to the law of Moses. I'm telling you to pay more attention to the law of Moses because you think the law of Moses only, only, uh, only works externally. You, you only apply to it externally. I say it's an x-ray all the way down to your heart, and you violated it in your heart. You pay more attention to the law of Moses, and when you do, you'll realize you're condemned, and the law has no ability to save you. And Paul says now things have changed. And it was the death of Christ that brought this about. Look, if you would, at verse 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to, to the law. There was an end. There was a change to the Mosaic Code and the law in general. And I want you to notice that these words are passive. You were made to die. Or some of your translations say, having died. Meaning this death is not something that you did. It's not a command. Die to the law. It's something that God brought about in Christ. I mean, the three rulers that tower over us in Adam after the fall are sin, death, and the law. Sin rules over us like a slave master, and the result of sin's slavery was was death. I mean, this is everything that Paul taught us in, in 5. Chapter 5, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, there's the first two, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The sin of Adam brought death into the world, condemned us all, and we sinned in the likeness of Adam and brought death upon ourselves. 
And so he goes on how Christ's death changes that. You're either in Adam or you're, or you're now in Christ. And his death frees us from that bondage, 518. So then as through one transgression, that was Adam's, there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so. Through the one act of righteousness, that's Christ, there resulted justification of life to all men. That's all who believe in him. Sin and death. You say, well, that's plain. I understand. Sin and death. But, but did you pay attention? I'm sure you did. But Paul adds one other thing there in chapter 5, doesn't he? Which is the whole reason that he writes all of chapter 7. I mean, the Jews understand sin. They understood death. They knew Adam and Eve. And then Paul says, the law came in so that transgression would increase. He says, you've got another problem. It's the reign of the law. Look at, me, look at what he says in Romans 7, 5 in your Bibles. Look at the very next verse where he explains what he means in verse 4. He says, for a while we were in the flesh, that's B.C., the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. The reign of the law didn't make us better. It actually stirred up our sin natures. These sinful passions were at work in, our, in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. This is the law produced in, in your life as an unsaved person, no matter how hard, how hard you tried to keep it, Jew or Gentile. And while the law is good and from God, its reign over us had horrible consequences because of our sin. It doesn't fix the problem. And so Paul is now showing how God removes its rule over us in Christ as well. And it's also by the cross. Sin and death and the law, the reign of the law, the condemnation of the law, our bouncing up against the law and it producing really bad stuff is dealt with also through the cross of, of Christ. This is exactly like Romans 5. Your spiritual death from sin's dominion came as a result of Christ's death. And so now Paul says it's, it's the same with your separation from the law's power. It came as a result of his death, not something you did. Look at verse 4 again. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law, something that God did, through the body of Christ. I mean, he doesn't just say Christ. He says he's very specific. He mentions his body. He could have just said, you also were made to die to the law through Christ. But he says through the body of Christ. Because he wants you to understand that this death that he's talking about happened to you vicariously. It's, you're not commanded to die to the law. It's, it's like saying, um, stop your conscience from condemning you. You can instruct your conscience, but deep down it's still going to condemn you. You know Paul's saying this happened to you. And now you see why Romans is a systematic theology. This is why he, he belabored this point of our union in, in, with Christ in chapter 5. And we got to chapter 5 and we're talking about Adam and original sin and federal head and all of these things. It's like, you know, just show me how to live for Jesus. And Paul's saying no. And we're saying no. And we're grinding through this, through all of that relationship to Adam and our relationship to Christ because that union is vital to the gospel. And if you miss that, you're going to miss this. And you're going to try to use the law in wrong ways. And you're going, to look where, uh, you're going to look to a powerless source when you have the power of heaven resident in you through the Spirit of God. The theological union in Christ's death is how you understand when the funeral that Paul is talking about here took place. I mean, being joined with Christ also joins you with His death. And being joined with that death releases you from the domain of the law to where you can now be in union to him. You're not lawless. You're not just floating out here. You're now married to Christ. You, you, have, a, you have a new yoke fellow. You, you, have a, you have a new husband. Not the law, but the Lord Jesus. And in that moment, everything that happened to him happened to you. So as he died, you died to the power of sin, and you also died to the law's dominion. And there's a connection with Christ closer than you realize. A union so close that it can be said that what happened to him on the cross, in the grave, coming out of the grave, has happened to us. It's a definitive death. It's not like the Catholics teach you that there's a perpetual death. It's a definitive death. And you were placed in him. And he died once for all. 
as he said from the cross, it's been accomplished, it's finished. And Paul, Paul says that finished work has an effect. And the only recovery of this kind of death is resurrection. Notice what else Paul adds, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, his death, so that you might be joined to another. So there's the end of the jurisdiction that came through the cross of Christ, and it was so that you could be joined to another, and more info, to him who was raised from the dead. He could have stopped there, but he doesn't. He gives us more data, more detail. Paul says when we were converted, we were were united with Christ, we were submerged into him. You remember, he uses this term, baptized into Christ. And all the outcomes of his work, and because of that, we were incorporated into his death, not only his death, but, but also the power of his resurrection. We now have new life. I mean, Jesus, I mean, you didn't die on the cross, Jesus did. But because he did and you were placed in him, you, are, you also receive all of the benefits, the new life that comes from the resurrection. And we're now joined to the one who has been raised from the dead. And being joined in this new marriage, to someone who's been raised from the dead. What's the point to that? The point is that this new relationship can never be broken. There's no end to it. It's the point of his emphasis here about the resurrection. We were separated from the old dominion, the law, that that brought us condemnation, and that ended. It, It could end. But this new relationship brings life, and we can never be separated, which is why Paul ends in Romans 8, What will separate us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he says, nothing, not even death will separate us from this new union in Christ. I mean, you realize your Christianity goes in the grave and out the other side. I mean, in the grave, there's there's a back to it. But in Christ, there's not. You go in and come out. Christ being raised from the dead can never die again, so this new relationship to him is everlasting. I mean, listen, all the fellowships and the blessing that you receive and you experience in Christ now is like a taster spoon of what is to come. I mean, you're going to get the whole five-gallon bucket of ice cream in heaven. You're going to get a river of ice cream, whatever the analogy you want to use. And think of the sweetest moments that you've had with the Spirit of God and the recognition of who God is, and you're sitting there. That's nothing what it's going to be like when you're in His literal presence. What's Paul saying? You may think about it this way. I mean, do you think the fulfillment of what God, uh, of what God is doing is going to break his law? And do you think the fulfillment of what he's doing in Christ is going to be the same as what he was doing in the old or less? Of course it's not going to be. And while the law passed away, Christ will never pass away, and neither will our union to him. And this change was for a purpose. Look at verse 4. Here's our final phrase. My brethren, you're made to die to the law through the body of Christ. There's the death. So you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. And here's the goal of it all. I mean, the purpose of his death to the law and our death, uh, I should say, to the law and subsequent marriage is so that we can do something that we could never do under the law, which was bear fruit. In fact, this death to the law is necessary. The old had to pass away. Moses had to go when Christ came. The henna clause here is dependent upon having died to the law, which simply means Paul is saying our death to the law is required before we can bear fruit to God. It's a strong way to emphasize this. And it's also one of the reasons he chose the analogy of marriage. Did you pick that up when you were reading this ahead of time? how the analogy of marriage connects to bearing fruit here? Because God's original purpose for marriage was what? Bearing fruit. Paul says, after the fall, because of our sin, we were in a bad marriage and a barren marriage with the law. We had no ability to bear fruit. It reigned over us, it had dominion over us, and we were constantly rebelling against it, which brought condemnation, And we could not do what God intended us to do under the law. We could not bear fruit. 
But God has brought an end to the old and a beginning of the new. And Paul is showing us why the old had to go. And he is clearly saying in this verse that the old had to go away because it could not help you bear fruit to God. Now you see why he chose the illustration of marriage or the second reason. Because it clearly illustrates both of his points. I mean, marriage has a binding aspect. The wife is under the authority of her husband in the same way we're under the law's authority. But he says at at the death of Christ, applied to us our death, and we we were married to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the reason is so that we may now bear fruit, which was God's original purpose for mankind. You go all the way back to the garden when he gave that general principle of law. I'm the law giver. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and and he gave them the original purpose of God's image bearers. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And it's not illegitimate to have a a lot of children, but that's not his main reason there. Being fruitful and multiply means to he wants to mankind to fill the earth with his image. You are my image bearers, the original image bearers. Replicate. Fill my image. Fill the earth with my image. And after the fall, we couldn't do that. And the law didn't correct that problem. We were supposed to replicate God's image, but because of the fall, we replicated Adam's fallen image. And there's no way to fix that problem. Unless you're in a new Adam who died so you could die to the old and who raised so you could raise to a new life. And in this new life, now that image can be recovered You're being conformed to the image of Christ so you can now bear fruit to God. The law not only condemns us because of our sin nature, it has no inherent power. Rules have no inherent power. They're not bad, but they don't have any power to change you. And Paul's point is the law is not bad. He's not saying that we have nothing else to do with law as New Testament believers. He'll explain about the law of Christ and all of that when we get there. He's pointing out two facts. First, God gave law, and it was binding. It was right, and it was binding. So God can't just wave his arm and say the covenant with Moses is no longer applicable. Something had to happen, and that something was the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ was both the fulfillment of the law, and in death he removed the law's jurisdiction. His death on the cross brought an end to the Mosaic covenant, and his resurrection brought the inauguration of the new covenant which is what Paul means by this newness of the spirit rather than the oldness of the letter. And the second thing is that this change is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. The law had to go away. The Mosaic Covenant had to pass. The law is completely and totally totally incapable of subduing our sin or changing us, so the old covenant had to end, and it only ends with a death. And you and I needed the new covenant to come so we could bear fruit to God Because under the law, we had no ability to do so. In fact, as God added more law, it actually made men worse, which is what the Jewish people were stumbling over. And all they needed to do is look at their own history to prove that. I mean, Israel, who had the law and the covenants, who were God's chosen people, who were living in his midst, did they get better whenever they received the law or worse? They got so bad that they rejected and killed their own Messiah whenever he came. The very provision for them, for their sin. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, how did they receive him? By the law or by faith? But as many as did receive him by faith, to them he gave the right to become children of God, and children of God, as children of God, we now bear fruit. You see, it was never God's intention that the law would be permanent and final. It was always God's plan that the fullness of the Spirit would come, which would then take the essence of His law and write it on our heart and then empower us in this new age by the Holy Spirit because the fulfillment has come. And God has made a fundamental shift in His redemptive plan at the the coming of Christ. He had a purpose and a plan for the Mosaic Law prior to Christ, and now he has a purpose and plan for the fullness of the Holy Spirit after the arrival of Christ. And Paul is saying, beware, 
to use old methods to try to accomplish a new work is impossible, or to use the analogy that Jesus did, you can't put new wine in old wineskins because they'll burst. It can't contain it. And the law could not complete the process of sanctification. It couldn't bring us back to God. It couldn't restore the image. It could tie up the tree. It could dung the tree. It could cultivate the tree. It could point out what's wrong with the tree. But the law was impotent to cause the tree to bear fruit, which is why it had to be set aside for something new, being the work of the Spirit in the new age. And the linchpin between the new and the old, the bridge is the coming of Christ and then our union with Christ. And the coming of Christ is what initiated the change in God's program. And our union with Him is what brought death to the law, meaning its dominion, and our union with His resurrection is, is what brings the Spirit and our ability to bring fruit. And Paul is making the same argument of the writer of Hebrews, just in a little different way. There must be an end of the one before there's a beginning of the other. So what does bearing fruit to God mean? Well, Doug Moo said it means producing thoughts and actions and character traits that bring God's glory, but you have to come back the next time to to learn more about that in detail. What I want to say to you right now is that if you're trying to get to God by being a good person, or you're trying to grow as a Christian by the law, it doesn't work that way. You can't get to God by being a good person because no matter how hard you try to keep His righteous and holy and good standards, you will always fall short. And as Paul will tell us next time, even the standard stirs up rebellion within us. And as a Christian, why would you want to go back to the old when you have the fullness of the new? Which now gives you power. You need to turn from Moses to Christ. John Milton said, He is not the lawgiver from Sinai, he's the Savior from Zion. And that's where you'll find hope. Horatius Bonner said, Christ is no Moses, no exactor, no executioner, but a propitiator of sin, a bestower of grace, of righteousness, and of life, who gave himself not for our merits or holiness or righteousness or our holy life, but for our sins. Christ gave himself for our sins. But without him there is sin and there's death. And there's condemnation because the lawgiver still reigns over you. But with him, there's life. And what kind of life is there? What kind of life does Jesus say that he brings? Not just life, but what kind of life? Abundant life. Fruitful life. And that comes through this union and this change. Let's pray.